When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Welcome back. The narrator of Julia May Jonas's stunning debut novel is a writer and college professor, and she has had quite enough. Her Lothario husband, chair of their department, has discovered that his past affairs with students have finally caught up with him in the Me Too era. And after years of tacitly allowing his behavior, our narrator, too, has found that she wears a scarlet letter as the condoning wife of a possible harasser. And yet the arrival of a new and fabulously enticing young professor, the Vladimir of the title, has set loose in her appetites and desires long ago, tamped down in deference to sexism, career, and her dedication to appearances. When we first meet her in the prologue, Vladimir has been strapped to a chair. We know who put him there, but not how he got there. The rewind of events tracks our narrator's re-engagement with art and a refusal of the moralistic codes that limit women to modest desires, expressions of will, and the production of their artistic imagination. In an original and often devastatingly sardonic voice, the narrator of Vladimir pokes a finger in the most vulnerable spots of American life and into the pieties of academia killing a few darlings along the way while raising others from the dead. To read Vladimir is to have your expectations smashed in the most enjoyable and captivating of ways. This is a novel of withering humor about the ways in which power flows in the institutions of marriage, art production, and the university. It is an unforgettable debut. Julia May Jonas is a playwright and director by training, author of several plays and founder of her own theater company. She is currently a professor of theater at Skidmore College in upstate New York, and I'm so pleased to get to chat with her today about the marvelous Vladimir. Welcome, Julia. 
Thank you so much for having me and for that wonderful introduction. I'm so pleased you're here. The campus novel is maybe my favorite subgenre of the novel. I realize it's a little on the nose for my being a college professor, but there it is. You too teach at a liberal arts college in, in New York, but why do you think your first novel ended up in academia? So the reason I set Vladimir inside of academia, I mean, first of all, when you start writing, you don't really make choices. You you begin to write, you create the character, and then you follow the character through the story, or at least that's how I tend to write. Uh, however, I do feel like academia is a constructed society, and inside of that, there are these politics, and there's a real uh, engagement between many different generations. And I think something that I was very interested in was about how different people from different generations viewed uh, their relationships to sex, to power, to morality, to many of those things that you uh, brought up in your introduction. The it, it, That reminds me a little bit of what I like so much about that new series, The Chair, which mm. feels a little bit like documentary rather than fiction. But it is that generational interaction that often mm. comes with inflaming qualities where new, um, especially younger generations feel empowered in their, in this, as you say, constructed society, and they are wanting to put that power on display. I don't know. Are you a, a fan of that show? And, and do you feel any resonances with your own work? I am. I mean, I saw it after Vladimir was written before it was published. I felt a little scooped to be honest. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I do think that uh, something that, you know, the the reason that I think that colleges are so appealing to write about and, and ways to think about, you know, where we are as an American society is, is because it really demonstrates people who come from different worlds who feel like the world is shifting underneath them in one way or another. Either they have the power to shift the world or they're feeling the power to shift the world or they're feeling as though all the truths they thought they knew are suddenly being rearranged for them. And I think that's why it can be so interesting and sticky to be inside of that environment. I love the chair. I, I think I had some thoughts that I wanted the professors to be grappling more uh, with, with the truths that their students were bringing, because I think that's mm -hmm. actually something that mm -hmm. professors really do mm -hmm. uh, grapple with. I mean, I think most professors are not dismissive of their students, except for, you know, the few that you read about in, in the New York Times or something yeah, Mr. like X. that. Mr. X Princeton guy. Right, <laughs> I don't think exactly. he was reflective about much. So, right, right. But I think you know, a, a professor is is in general a, a thoughtful person, or can be. I mean, and certainly of this, you know, certainly professors of my generation, but older as well. And I think they are interested in hearing what the students have to say. So that was my one criticism of the chair: is that it, that professors felt kind of reflexively. Um, pitted against the students. And I, I, that I don't feel like is true. And I don't feel as though my narrator is reflexively pitted against her students. I think she is grappling with the fact that she's a, she came from a certain time. She had a certain understanding about what sexuality meant to her as a feminist um, and just as a, as a free woman. 
and the opinions of her students, the difference with which they see sexuality it is very, very hard for her to put those truths together and have them had come to a new understanding uh, for her. So I think I think there's more back and forth in these institutions than than gets advertised to us sometimes. I think you're exactly right. I agree. Vladimir opens with a wonderfully distilled description of male desire and how that desire is felt and understood by a younger woman. Part and parcel of most campus novels is sex and sexual malfeasance, often between a male professor and his students. There's Lolita and My Dark Vanessa, Philip Roth's The Human Stain, Michael Chabon's Wonder Boys, and on and on. You very much turn this power dynamic on its head. Can you tell us what you wanted to do with this aspect of the campus novel? Definitely. I thought about primarily a woman who has found the source of her desire from being found attractive, which I think that's how many socialized women come to desire, which is which is the way they get turned on, for lack of a better word, is by being found desirable. And I was particularly thinking about uh, a woman reaching an age in her life where she felt like that that was no longer available for her. That because Mm -hmm. of, I think, mainly her self-perception that she was not going to be found desirable and she has no way into her desire uh, after that. She doesn't have that sense of, I want the cake, I'm going to eat the cake. She looks at the cake and says, what does the cake think about me? Uh, as as a way to become sexually activated. And so that was the real flip that I wanted to explore. And, you know, I think she is a product of her generation. I don't think she necessarily even fully succeeds in overcoming that, but I think her desire is to try and access a sense of want that is not about her own perception. Her husband John's parade of affairs with students occurred prior to the college's official prohibition on those kind of relationships. When he confronts, when he's confronted by a petition of hundreds of students seeking his dismissal, the narrator finds herself in a precarious position. She has endured the affairs in the past, but now finds herself pilloried by young women students of the Me Too era who see her as anti-feminist. This is reminiscent of Hillary Clinton's fielding of hate from women who blamed her for the quote-unquote allowing of Bill's affairs. Does there continue to be a different standard for women in this situation? Well, I think women are always considered moral arbiters. Um, and that's something that I, I consistently rail against and get frustrated with and try and explore inside of my work is this this inherent assumption that women have uh, a greater and higher sense of morality than men. Um, mm-hmm. I think Jill Lepore in The New Yorker wrote a wonderful article about this at one point when she was talking about uh, women and, and prohibition this idea that we have to be looking after our men at all times. So I absolutely think that women are held to a double standard. I think that it's very difficult for the students not to see her, for anyone not to see her as someone who's allowing her husband to do this thing rather than 
not being responsible for his behavior. And I think for her, that's particularly frustrating because also for her generation, she's been someone who has had to say, my career and my family life are two completely different things. And I will never discuss my family life when I'm inside of my career. You know, I have Mm -hmm. two kids right now and I feel perfectly comfortable talking about them in a meeting in mixed company. Um, I feel uh, perfectly fine identifying uh, as a person with children, as well as a writer, a teacher. Uh, But I think for her, she really had to keep those things separate. So to have that then be brought up against her, I think that about, you know, Hillary Clinton as well. I mean, she is an incredibly accomplished person who has, you know, blazed a career for herself completely separate from her husband and then is being asked to all of a sudden account for his behavior. And I, I, I think uh, it has to feel incredibly unfair. I, I can't even imagine the, the anger that she must have had to tamp down over the years. Mm-hmm. The narrator in Vladimir is asked by the English department to take a leave from teaching essentially because of her husband's transgressions. She has uh, then a sudden urge to eat with abandon and decadence. Would you mind reading that scene for us? It's one of my favorite in the novel. Absolutely. Seized with an urge to consume, I went to an upscale butcher shop that had recently opened in the area and bought expensive T-bone steaks from a very handsome, well-muscled butcher. I tried to imagine him tracing the tip of his knife over the curves of my body to cheer myself up, but the fantasy failed to displace my doldrums. I stopped at the organic market and purchased dark black kale and designer anchovies and a $19 brick of Parmesan and olives and seeded crackers and an uncut boule of whole wheat sourdough and goat cheese and salami and raspberries and a flourless chocolate ganache tort. Usually I went to some undignified liquor warehouse for alcohol. The wines were good enough and the prices were better and the sales clerks left you alone. Today, however, I stopped at the boutique in town, used only by tourists, and let an Englishman talk me into three $30 bottles of red and a new artisan vodka. I wanted to take substances into my body like an immoral and immoderate businessman traveling on a company credit card. I wanted everything that passed my lips to be decadent, full of sulfites or iron, with mouth-screwing flavor to taste rich and deep. I found Sid in the guest room, glassy-eyed and grumpy, playing a multiplayer video game on her laptop. I demanded she shower, put on a button-down, and meet me downstairs. Sensing my desperation, she complied. I stripped, ripped, and washed the kale and set it out to dry, rinsed and patted the steaks and shook them with salt and pepper. I am of the opinion that good steak should have no seasoning other than salt and pepper. I lightly boiled an egg and then broke it into the bottom of a wide, low salad dish with anchovies that had been mottled with garlic and olive oil. To that, I added the kale and a massive amount of freshly grated Parmesan, and then massaged it until it shone. I set out the cheese, salami, bread, crackers, and olives and decanted the wine. I pulled out my tray of cocktail fixings with the firm intent of getting completely and gloriously wasted. The air was chilly 
but daylight savings was still a few weeks away, so I pulled out extension cords, ran them into the backyard, and plugged in two heat lamps so that Sid and I could sit and watch darkness fall and the evening creatures peek out from the bushes. There were always a disturbing number of deer, covered in flies and ticks and savagely ripping the heads off of all the flowers, those you saw every night. Often you would see a fox, sometimes reddish rabbits, and very occasionally a beaver or a possum. One year, there was an ancient-looking tortoise from God knows where who lived nearby the pool for a month as she laid her eggs. Sid and I set up a folding table, and I put the steaks on the grill. By the time they were ready, I had drunk half my martini. I ate like a beast, ripping chunks of flesh with my teeth, stabbing enormous forkfuls of the salad into my mouth, and letting the oil smear all over my face, shoveling crackers and cheese, alternating my red wine with my martini to wash everything down. Sid and I tore the sourdough with our hands, soaking the pieces in salted olive oil. I had a memory of my mother back when I was 12 or so. She was a nurse's aide, and after she and my father divorced, she picked up shifts as a waitress at a local Irish pub, the kind that exists in most towns in America, with burgers and onion rings and soggy fish and chips, and a perpetual stale beer mixed with cheap floor cleaner topped with cigarette smoke smell. Friday nights, I and I suppose my sisters if they were home, though I don't remember them ever being there, was permitted to stay up and wait for her to come home. I would read and watch late night TV and try and her makeup in the bathroom mirror until around 11 p.m. when her shift was done. She would come in bearing two grocery-sized bags full of pub fare and a couple of bottles of Coca-Cola, and she and I would feast on the soggy, greasy food and the sugary desserts until we could eat no more. I remember a silent, content, and chewing it was the one time my mother and I shared a common appetite together, perhaps the time we were the closest. Thank you so much. I love that scene. And I also want that meal to be my last meal. Um, <laughs> it's immoderation and it's primalness, I think is really extraordinary and so well and vividly described. And also the passing on of this tradition of the narrator and her mother and now um, with her daughter. When you were writing that scene, what did you want to show us in how that hunger might manifest in a person who had been raised to believe such a need was distasteful in women? That's an interesting question. I think that everything that she's consuming in my mind, I, you know, uh, in a kind of a synesthesia way, if you think about food being gendered, feels like these kind of male foods, mm -hmm, you know, this mm -hmm. kind of very, like you say, totally. very primal, but it's this red meat. It's everything is very dark and greasy and, and using your hands. And so I, I thought about her wanting to um, consume that kind of food and to, to in some way bring in this kind of uh, drive that, and, potentially strength, uh, but also comfort. Um, you know, food is, is when I thought about this meal, I mean, I think I also just thought about a meal that I would really enjoy. And that if I was feeling like I wanted to indulge, I would also <laughs> make this meal potentially. So that was part of it. But I, I do think there's something very interesting about people choices of foods i'm i'm i keep thinking as we're talking about the the narrator in iris murdoch's the sea the sea who was absolutely a an inspiration for 
the food writing in this. Um, and the food writing is very different in that he, he eats things like lentils and apricots and has little, you know, bits of, of canned tomatoes. Um, and the food, the food is quite awful, but it, it says so much about who he is and, and what he wants and, and what his, uh, what his body is like. There's something that I feel like about food both brings people in, but then also just tells you so much about who the person is and where they're at, which is what you're saying. I'm not sure if that's an answer to the question, uh, but but that's something that I, I thought about. And I did think about this idea that we're, we're my parents, you know, as parents, people are tr- constantly trying to uh, teach their children, but when you really let go with your children, the capacity to enjoy them and to to show this kind of weaker side of yourself, maybe not weaker is the wrong word, but this more indulgent, more basic uh, pleasure needing side of yourself, that's when I think real togetherness can happen. I love that. The Vladimir of the title is a sexy experimental writer just recently hired by the college. He becomes the totem of the narrator's desire, and right from the prologue, we know he will end up tied to a chair. While Vladimir is certainly described as physically attractive, it is his creative work that produces the real desire in the narrator. She devours his book and finds herself re-engaged with her own creative production. Did you want to blow up the fallacy of the singular creative muse and instead focus on how your narrator, in a way, invents him as a fuel for her own creative energy? Yes, I did want to think about how desire often gets put through a filter, and then that filter can often become thicker and thicker, uh, you know, what we put on a person, the desire itself becomes the thing we start to engage with versus the actual person. All of us do this or have done this at some point in our life, you know, specifically for the narrator. But I think for all of us, when you reach a certain age, desire is enticing in and of itself. It's not a feeling that you're feeling all the time. You're no longer a prepubescent. Um, but then when you start to become activated by a sense of longing, and and that sense of longing can be about a person, it can be about really wanting a job. But but that's that real act of desire, I think, is the most one of the most intoxicating feelings we have as humans. Um, and so, and so for her and energizing, you know, as you say, she starts to write the book. And I think the, the energy that the desire is giving her is the thing that she is, is loath to let go. Hmm. Prior to writing this novel, you were known primarily as a playwright. I often think of these genres as polar opposites in creative writing. One is nearly all dialogue with very little interiority, and the other is description, exposition, and the inner life of the mind. Did you find that your work as a director and playwright helped you find your way into the novel, or did you have to work around some old habits? There were certain things that when I wrote this that I figured out, um, that I had to figure out, specifically summarizing dialogue. I initially wrote some chapters almost completely in dialogue. 
And that was actually very helpful for me to figure out what the movement of the scene was. But I knew that that was not going to be the final uh, offering of the of the chapter. And so when I learned how to summarize dialogue, that became the uh, the uh, basically unlocked the book for me. And then I did think about this book and writing the character because it's written in the in I first person. I don't know why I just said I. Okay. But I did think about (laughs) when I was writing um, the book in first person about it being a long monologue. And that was very helpful for me to just get over any fears or trepidations I had about writing prose. Um, And essentially, you know, by thinking of it as a long monologue, but also knowing that I was working in the prose form, I could indulge in all the things that you can indulge with uh, when you're when you're writing plays, I could think about backstory and memories. I could give justifications. I could pause inside of moments and think about how she was feeling inside of that moment. All of that stuff in playwriting, which is quite a tricky and very very precise form, you can't say. You mm-hmm. can maybe mm-hmm. write some stage directions. Uh, but you truly can't go into all of that in the play. And so it felt actually felt like a, a form of liberation and freedom to be able to work in this prose form. And then the other thing that I felt like uh, felt different and freeing at this time was that I could know that what I was writing was going to be the the direct transmission to the reader. So obviously when you write a play, the way people take it in is they see it performed. And so you have many layers of interpretations going on top of that. And uh, so many things can come together inside of a play to make it wonderful because a play requires collaboration, but also can go wrong. You know, I've seen plays ruined by bad lighting cues. It, they feel that fragile, and so there was a real sense of, of freedom and empowerment for me to know that I could directly communicate with the reader and that I could work with the clay of the words as much as I needed to. Be, and, and that would be something that would be received. So I, I felt like it felt very liberating. And then also I have written prose for many years Usually what would happen is I would write about, you know, 50 to 70 pages of a novel, and then I would be called upon to work on a play or do a workshop or something like that. And I would put that novel in the drawer and I would never return to it. Hmm. So the fact that the pandemic happened and theater actually didn't exist and I couldn't be called for any of those opportunities allowed me to click into a voice and click into a way of writing and, and then simply, you know, download the entire book (laughs) did you um or do you think about returning to any of those novels in the drawer or proto novels in the drawer no i feel like i i i feel like i clicked into a different kind of voice that made sense and all of a sudden i knew how to write so i i feel excited about writing more novels But I don't feel like I'm going to revisit those because when I remember my experience of writing those, I remember them as attempts to find a voice or the way I was going to write prose. And this in that 
almost classic way felt like a release. All of a sudden I could release into the voice that uh, was available. And so it feels, it feels different. The final scenes of Vladimir are a fever dream of desire transformed into violence. I was gobsmacked when I first read them. You turned the generic expectations for what a novel like this is allowed to do and express upside down. Part of me felt like it was you holding Nabokov upside down by his ankles and giving him a good shake. Did you always know that the novel was going to end up here? And how aware were you of smashing those kinds of conventions? Well, I certainly knew uh, about the the image that appears at the beginning of the book, and I knew that I was writing toward that image. Um, so, so that was available from the beginning. And then what happened after that image of Vladimir tied up in the chair, that actually I, I didn't know until I got much closer. Mm, fascinating. But, <laughs> but as I got closer, I also, uh, I recognized... Uh, many themes about the book that I was writing. I thought about Gothic novels uh, as being novels of obsession. And so I was pulling on, thought about pulling on those forms. I thought about uh, absolutely Nabokov and more than Lolita, even uh, his book, Laughter in the Dark. But, uh, you know, Nabokov has wild things happening in many of his novels. There's mm, many yeah, fires. <laughs> <laughs> There's, you know, I, I think about Lolita and, and we never talk, uh, many people don't talk about Quimby and the, the fact that he shoots a man, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of that book. Um, and so I was thinking about these kind of scorched earth, high stakes novels and what it would feel like to put that inside of this, uh, different human being. And I did also to bring back again, um, Iris Murdoch, I think that her novels, they start in a psychological register and then you watch characters who, uh, act not out of character, but in extreme ways that feel at odds with the book. But for me, they open up the book. You know, that kind of moment of dissonance where you say, oh, I I can't believe this character is doing this. Then that brings the book to me inside of a almost a, a philosophical register. And that's how I'm able to then engage with it. Um, and, you know, as a, as a playwright, I'm I'm a Brechtian, so hmm. I think of plot as a as a very transparent structure to tell the story. And 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 when I'm reading a book, I'm always curious about why is the author bringing me here, and what does that do to the book? And and that was something I was thinking about this watching this woman who we've been inside of her body so intimate with doing doing this act and. And what that does to us as readers, what that makes us think about, how it jars us, how it, how it, uh, how it disrupts us. 
can we talk for a second about the cover of Vladimir? Mm -hmm. It is a picture of a man in a green velvet suit, but with no shirt on underneath, thus revealing his hirsute chest and belly. He sits with a hand casually draped across his lap or his crotch, depending on your perspective. There's something tugging at the visceral in this depiction. It's not sexy, but it is sensual. How did you and the design team land on this cover? Well, I was sent it fully formed, like Athena coming out <laughs> of the head of the design team. <laughs> um, I, as a playwright, something and a theater maker, something I've learned throughout the years is is to trust your designers. Uh, I am somebody who works with words, and uh, whenever I find that I push back against people who work in visual mediums, at least who I'm working with, when I find I push back out of thinking, oh, I know better than this, or I know exactly what this cover should be, or I know how this should look, it's always less interesting than what a designer will bring to me as their their initial idea. So I said, I am interested in seeing what you think up. I didn't send any kind of images to work off of. I Sometimes authors do that. Um, and then I was sent this and I opened it and I, I kind of gasped and laughed at the same time. Mm -hmm. And... I thought about what my mother would say and then <laughs> and uh and then I slept on it and I continued to think about it and I decided uh that it was perfect. Um, it, it it is perfect. You can't know it's perfect until you've read the the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And and it is it's shockingly original and it and it really veers away from the really kind of tropey, commonplace ways that we see books designed, many of which are beautiful but recognizable, and this is this is its own thing. Yeah, absolutely. I felt so excited by that because it really, you know, it's not a, a watercolor splotch book, which again <laughs> can be <laughs> very beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> but the the boldness of the photograph, the boldness of the font, the way the font has this kind of recall of of romance novels, but it's not quite that. Uh, he's he's sexy, but he's also not quite sexy. It's a little discomforting. It's a little disturbing. All of it working together. I mean, I just feel like you know the photographer Molly Molly Madelon, who took the picture of the model. I think she's just a, a wonderfully brilliant artist. And, uh, and then the design team that put it together, it really, it really always, when I look at it closely, it just works on me. Yeah, it, it works for me as well. Before I let you go, I would love to hear about some of the novels that have been feeding you creatively recently, and also if there are any campus novels that may have acted as catalysts for the creation of Vladimir. Sure. A, a novel that I always mention when people ask me for book recommendations these days is Ghost Wall by Sarah Moss. I love it. Uh, yes, it's one of those amazing books that subtly and gradually reveals itself to be a different book than what you thought it was, which I think seems like based on our conversation is my favorite kind of book. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Um, I also recently read uh, this wonderful book, Human Blues by Elisa Albert, which is just so much incredible voice. Uh, and it, it swept me away in a certain way. Um, and then I also have been uh, uh, reading, rereading a lot of Colette, partially because I thought about how my narrator has this relationship to desire. And, and I read Colette, I think, in my 20s, uh, but haven't read her in a long time. And so recently I, I've been reading her book, Break of Day, which is a postmenopausal book one of the few that exists Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's so Um, true yeah and it is i mean the uh her prose is just transcendent oh and then in terms of campus novels i mean certainly i thought about lolita which is not really a campus novel but he's a man of letters he does he does teach at a college and then i thought about penin and then pale fire Basically, you know, where I got my kind of campus inspiration was from Nabokov. And I'll be quite honest, I didn't really know I was writing a campus novel. I knew I was writing about a professor and then it became this campus novel. Um, It became about this this generational divide. But that wasn't my intention from the beginning. Well, I'm very glad it ended up there. And I'm glad for these recommendations. Thank you so much for a wonderful conversation, Julia. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm so pleased. Well, that's all from me for now. My thanks to Julia Mae Jonas for an engaging and thoughtful conversation about her debut novel, Vladimir. A link to purchase Vladimir and Julia's recommended books can be found at our website, burnedbybooks.com where you'll also find all of our previous episodes. You can also find our podcast t-shirt and information about pitching me books and authors. Next episode, I welcome debut novelist Elaine Shea Chow, author of Disorientation. You won't want to miss it. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. (laughs) 